0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, page 872 in the Bibles in front of you. We, uh, I realize today is really full of a lot of different things, a lot of really good things. Um, and we have a ton of ground to cover in this text today. But before we dive into it, let us go back to our, our sovereign Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would pierce into each and every one of our souls in just the way you've designed it. I pray that it would come with authority. I pray that it would come with weightiness. And I pray that it would give way to the most glorious needed truths in each and every one of our lives. Father, what we pray every single week is always true every single week. The thing that we need most, every person in this room without distinction, whether they do not yet know how good Christ is, whether they are far from you, whether they have become numb to you, whether this is their first time in a church or they haven't been in one in two decades or whether they are here every Sunday and have been doing it for 70 years, What each and every one of us needs is to leave this time more impressed, more confident in what Jesus Christ has done, and more hope-filled in all that he promises to do. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would lift Christ high, that he might draw all of us after him. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Stuart Briscoe um, recently passed away, but he was a pastor and an author for a number of decades in the, the Midwest, became very well known, wrote a number of books, and in one of his books, he tells this story of a church search committee that was assembled in order to hire a new preacher. So they're looking for a new preacher. They write the job description. Then they come up with kind of like, here's the big headline line of what we are looking for from a new preacher. And it's this. They said, we're looking for someone who is totally fearless and uncompromising as he tells us exactly what we want to hear. (laughs) Totally fearless and uncompromising as long as what you say already agrees with what I believe. Sounds about right. Bold and direct, as long as it just affirms me. But that's not preaching. That's pandering. I shared a well-known mantra this past uh, Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service that of the many tasks of preaching, one of the primary ones is this, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. No one was better at doing that than Jesus. Jesus. Today's passage is a dimension of Jesus and what Jesus is going to talk about and Jesus is going to say, it's, it's a side of him that is not often spoken of in our culture and it can be disorienting. I'll give you a little headline over the verses we're about to read. In your Bibles, oftentimes there's either like a bold phrase or a couple words or maybe they're in italic, but it's it's over the actual verses, but the little bold header or the italic phrase that's not actually part of God's word that's given by the Bible interpreters to try to give you a handle on what you're about to hear. Here's what it says above Luke chapter 13 in my Bible, repent or perish. How's that for being fearless and uncompromising? It may not be what you want to hear, but I would suggest it's one of, if not the most important thing for us to hear. We're going to look at three things as we work through this passage together the greatest urgency, the greatest salvation, and the greatest response. The greatest urgency, the greatest salvation, and the greatest response. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told, and this is speaking of Jesus, told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Feel free to grab a seat. You know, I want you to imagine the scene of, of this, this text. There's some people that come to Jesus, and it's in light of two, what would have been well-known, one of them an atrocity and one of them a tragedy. And they come to Jesus, and they, they ask him about this. There was some president at the time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. These people were murdered by Pilate, one of the governors in charge. And Jesus responds, I think in a very unusual way. It would be like you coming up to me after the earthquakes that just happened in in Turkey and saying, "Did did you hear what happened? Did you hear how many people lost their lives? Do you know about the people that are still missing in all of the rubble? And I look you square in the eyes and I say, unless you repent, you will likewise perish or you come up after the string of shootings that happened in California, these senseless and terrible acts. You tell me about them and I look at you and my first response is this. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The reason I try to make this contemporary is I want to I clue into to at least this question. Is Jesus being insensitive? Is he being inappropriate? Is, this, is it not the right time to say that in light of this tragedy? It's definitely a different response than what we would typically assume Jesus would respond. It's a different way of responding than Jesus typically would. I mean, we have texts like in, in John 8 when, when Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He doesn't take that as an opportunity to stand with the sisters that are there and the friends that are there and say, you see, John, if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. Oh, in that text, Jesus weeps. Or when a dad came up to Jesus and asked him to heal his sick daughter. And then as Jesus was there with the, the dad of his daughter, someone came from, from, from their, their home and said, don't trouble Jesus anymore, your daughter has died. Jesus doesn't then look at the dad and say, well, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. No, in that text, he says, oh, fear not. She's gonna get healed. What Jesus is doing here in an answer that feels so unusual is that he's addressing a commonly held belief at this time. It was generally presumed that if you suffered a terrible fate, then it meant you were a worse sinner than others. It's a sort of karmic way of understanding life that if I do bad things, then bad things happen to me. But if I do good things, then good things will happen to me. So if something bad happened to these people, then it must be because they were really bad. We see it in places like John 9, another part of the Bible that's talking about the life of Christ and there's a man born blind and the people ask Jesus, they come to him and they say, okay, Jesus, tell us, was, is this guy a sinner or is it his parents? And we might be like, that sounds so barbaric, but I mean, we do it all the time. We, we do it like, oh, my kids turned out great, therefore I must have been a great parent or oh, that, those kids, those people didn't turn out very good, they must have done a really poor job. And Jesus is addressing that. And what he's doing is he's challenging that way of thinking. In effect, he's saying they weren't worse sinners. And you aren't better people. In fact, you're all sinners. And if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. Jesus redirects them by using these disasters to take a moment and think about their own lives and the condition of their own souls. But he's doing something else. Both of these situations, one of the things that they have in common is they're both very sudden. This line about Pilate coming and mingling the blood of the Galileans, the picture there is that they were up at the temple, they were worshiping God, they were bringing their, their sacrifices to God, and while they were worshiping in the temple, Pilate had somebody come and put a hit out on them. We don't know if it was politically motivated, we don't know the situation that preceded it, but it's seen while they were offering, they were murdered. It was sudden. Or this tower in Siloam that fell... It reminds me of when, uh, when the bridge down over the Skagit River—if you—if you remember this on I five when it collapsed one day, it just dropped. If you knew the moment it was going to drop, I guarantee you would have taken a different route. It was sudden. The parable: three years have passed. Tree's not bearing fruit. We're going to cut it down. And then there's this extra year that's given and it's, it's, it's not trying to say along with verses one through five, it's not trying to say, oh, you have as much time as, as you need. It's saying you don't know how much time there is. This extra year, it is God's kindness. The breath you have right now is God's kindness. But his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance. It was over 10 years ago, our furnace was on the fritz and a technician came out to our house to service the furnace and at some point we got into a conversation and the technician shared that he had been in the previous year in a really, really horrific motorcycle accident. He was in the hospital, I, from what I remember it was months, and he was like, everyone told me that I am lucky to be alive, that I should be dead. And then he, had, he said this line, he says, I guess I'm alive for some reason. And I looked at him and I said, I know what the reason is. God gave you extra time so you could turn to him and be saved. His response back to me was this, I'll think about it. That's a dangerous place to be. To assume you always have tomorrow. To assume there's always more time. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 says this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's no greater urgency. Right now is the greatest urgency because it offers the greatest salvation. R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few years ago, but it was a really well-known author and, and preacher and, and academic and, and professor he tells a story of when he was teaching, it was back in the 60s, is at Temple University, and it was during his lunch break, he was really busy, and so the way he tells it, he's like, I had to get off to the side of campus, I just need to get away from my office, I need to get away from the classroom, I just need to get some time with the Lord, so he goes off to the side of this, the, 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 the property of Temple University, he's he like, I, I milked every moment I possibly could, because I had to get back to a lecture, but I just kept waiting, waiting, waiting until the very last minute, and then I said, I got to get back, so he begins to, to march really quickly through the, the grounds of Temple University, and at some point, this guy kind of jumps, I don't know, I think he jumped out of the bushes, but he just surprised Sproul, and he just stops him, and he looks at him, and he says, are you saved? In R.C., he pauses, and he thinks of a few things he could say, but then he responds with this, saved from what? The man that asked him this question just kind of stood there, confused, and then at some point began to kind of stumble over some answers, and he said something like this, you know, saved. Like, do you know Jesus? And now quoting R.C. Sproul, he says this. He said, this serendipitous encounter left an impression on me. I experienced real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted in, in my soul that someone cared enough about me, even though I was a stranger, to stop and ask about my salvation. But it was clear that though this man had a zeal for salvation, he had little understanding of what salvation is. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and a concern for people. Few Christians have the courage to engage perfect strangers in evangelistic discussion. But sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. I think that's a good question for us to ask of this text. Saved from what? Well, the text says perish. But is that all it's saying? Is that all that's loaded up in that word? What does that, what's that word mean? The word perish um, obviously can mean death. That's how it's used in this text. So let's, let's unpack it that way. So is Jesus saying, if you repent, you won't die? Of course not. There's many people that have repented that have died. Is he saying, if you repent, you won't perish in the same way? This use of the word likewise, like you won't be murdered, and you won't experience a natural disaster or a structural failing or a calamity. If you repent, then you won't experience those things. Of course not. Repentant people are murdered and die in accidents all the time. The key to seeing what we're saved from is to see the connection that Jesus makes between three different words, the word repent, the word perish, and the word sin. What Jesus is doing is using this urgent moment, this unknown moment, this you-don't-know-if-you-have-tomorrow moment, this atrocity where they're murdered, and this spot where a tower falls, and trying to connect these life situations right now towards the eternal reality, saying, if you do not repent, you will perish eternally. John 3.16, that's how this this word perish is used. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And then you have the contrast, but have eternal life. Go back to the question, saved from what? Someone asked you that question. They, you, are you saved? You ask, are you saved? They say, saved from what? How would you answer it? I know for me, I can get out of balance with my answers to that question because it's so much easier to talk about what we're saved for and what we're saved to, than what we're saved from. Oh, we're saved to new life. Oh, we're saved to an inheritance that's unspoilable, Oh, we're saved to, to, to forgiveness. Oh, we're saved to the to, to the presence of God. Oh, we're saved to a new creation. Oh, we're saved to heaven. We're saved from loneliness. We're saved from being on our own. We're, we're, we're saved into justification and saved into righteousness. And we're saved into reconciliation with God. And oh, it can be, it is so good. But what are we saved from? R.C. Proly went on to actually write the book, Saved From What, to try to answer the question of the many things that we could say we're saved from, his most pointed answer is this. We're saved from God. Specifically, we're saved from the wrath of God. If you continue to read in John chapter 3, you get down to verse 36, and it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I try to define and color that word a little bit. Wrath is the terrible and eternal, perfectly measured, totally reasonable judgment from a holy God for our sin. Terrible, eternal it's not a rant. It's not the way as a parent when I lose my cool with my kids and I respond inappropriately. It is the perfectly meted out judgment of God against sin, which R.C. Sproul would call holy cosmic treason. Richard Sibbs, as a pastor and author, uh, wrote one of my favorite books. Very gentle guy, very compassionate, very tender pastor, a real pastoral shepherdy sensibility. He wrote an entire book on one verse of the Bible, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, talking about the, the, the most, the, the we, you know, of which I would account myself, the weakest, fearful, meandering Christians, the Father so tender, he won't snuff, he won't remove. Uh, a bruised reed was like a piece of grass that was bent over. He said, I won't even break that, but I'll come and I'll mend it. So I want you to, to know that background as I give you another line that Richard Sibbs shared. He says this, outside of Christ, God is terrible. Now, that may not be something you hear often. And what Sibs is doing, he's not throwing shade at God. He knows God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, he knew it, but he said outside of Christ, there is a judgment that is terrible. Now, much of our culture, maybe many of us, we don't like that idea that there's judgment, but we do like justice, or at least our versions of justice. If God exists, here's what we want. We want God to be kind and help us out and hook us up and not mess with us. But do we want them to be holy? I think about our culture's versions of, of justice. I mean, think about, think about this right now. On the one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, I don't know how everyone in this room feels, but, but I, I would be fairly confident saying most of us want. Putin to be held accountable for the things that he's doing. And that's the talks that are, like, to be tried for war crimes, to be held for, for, for um, crimes against humanity. And many of us to say, yes, he deserves to be held accountable for the things he has done. Should Putin be not be judged and held accountable for his actions? Of course Does God not have the right, the responsibility to hold us accountable for ours? Now, you might be like, but I'm not as bad as him. I haven't done what he did. Well, thanks be to God for that. But isn't that what they're doing in this text? The Galileans must have been worse sinners, right? That's why they perished. I look super tall compared to a a, a five-year-old. We can sometimes feel super moral and super put together compared to the people around us. But what about a God who in the highest heavens cannot contain who is called holy, holy, holy? Save from what? The wrath of God. We'll connect that with another word that I'm sure we're not gonna enjoy in our culture But wrath meted out is where we get the word hell. Saved from what? Hell. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we see a really similar text to what's happening here in Luke chapter 13. Um, Luke 3, 7 through 9 says this. He, this is talking John the baptizer, said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John was going to the church. That's who he was talking about. And when they say, We have Father Abraham, it's like, Well, I grew up in the church and I show up at church. I'm sure I'm totally fine with God. It's like, Oh, no. If you have not repented, the wrath of God is on you. I was listening to a podcast recently with Michael Horton, a professor down in California, and he was relaying this conversation he had with Billy Graham a few months before Billy Graham passed away. And if you don't know who Billy Graham is, he was a very well-known evangelist in the 20th century, went all over the world talking about Jesus. And and Horton asked this question, he says, uh, you know, Mr. Graham, what do you wish... Uh, evangelicals, what do you wish Christians would do more? And here was Billy Graham's response. Talk about hell. Because without hell, you don't need the cross. There's no wrath, there's no judgment. And if there's no hell, why did Jesus have to die? See, the cross is about Jesus taking the terrible penalty that we all earned. You know, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. He used a lot of vivid language, things like it's where the worm doesn't die and where the fire is not quenched, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And However you take that language, and people take it in different ways, whether it's figurative, whether it's literal, the whole point was this, it's terrible. More than the language that Jesus used though, Jesus actually modeled this. On the night that he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, he's in what's known as the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to the Lord and he's under so much anguish. His soul is so troubled for what he's about to face. Is he, the, the, the text actually says he was like sweating drops of blood. And he prays, he says, Father, if there's any way for this to happen, if there's any way for me to save people from perishing, could this cup pass? Could I, could I not drink this cup? And when Jesus prayed that, he wasn't talking about the cross specifically. the, The cross, as excruciated as that can be, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the cup of God's wrath that he knew he would have to drink so you don't have to. If there's any way. But not my will, yours be done. And then Jesus goes to a cross. And on the cross about noon, there was darkness over the whole land as a sign of God's divine judgment upon Christ. And on the Christ, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think we know the soul wrenching. We do not. We do not know that soul-wrenching reality. And why Jesus says the time is urgent is he doesn't want you to know that soul-wrenching reality. Christ was forsaken. Do you know why he was forsaken? So you do not have to be. So you do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus took hell. That's what he was doing. He was taking hell. He became the curse. He bore our guilt, that in him we might be righteous, that we might be delivered. Without hell, you don't need the cross, but I I want you to hear, but in in the shadow and the terror of of hell and the wrath of God, we see the glory of the cross, we see the glory of the gospel, Christ has done so much more brilliantly. See, the bad news, the really bad news, it it shines a spotlight on the good news in 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 a way that is unsurpassing. See, it's in the cross for the love of God and the justice of God. They actually meet where He is just and yet the justifier of those who trust Him. It's where the holiness of God and the mercy of God they coalesce and they come together. That all of God's attributes on display: His mercy and His kindness and His patience and His justice and His wisdom and and, and His self-giving sacrifice. Where He is gracious and compassionate, but will by no means clear the guilty. It's at the cross. See, the wrath of God and the reality of hell and the cross, it actually makes, it's been thinking about this, it makes the songs we sing make sense. All these songs we get together and sing on Sundays, it actually makes them make sense. It's, it's like adding the right amount of seasoning to a soup. It brings out the life. Song, it is well, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance, oh gosh, why do I need the assurance because of uh, I, what I've been saved from? control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for my soul and then what is my favorite verse in that song my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought you know when's the last time you thought about your sin and had bliss like my bliss is I think about what a wretched person I am but I have this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. There's no wrath left. There's no condemnation left. There's there's no judgment left. There's none of it. There's none of it. I will never be eternally forsaken. I'm only ever gonna be eternally welcomed and loved and claimed. And that's why then when we sing, right? Sometimes if you find yourself not singing, remember what you've been saved from, not just who you've been saved towards and what you've been saved for. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Oh, do you know what I've been ransomed from? And it's only as we ask this question, what are we saved from? That we can say, what are we saved by? And the one one word answer is this, grace. That's what makes even the bad news bearable is it's not, oh, here's the terrible news on your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. See, we actually live in a culture that mets out a lot of judgment, things like cancel culture, but it offers no redemption. There's no way back. The Bible deals with us honestly and says, oh, the the sentence upon you is deep and significant, but I'll bring you back. All you have to do is receive it. It's grace. It's grace, saved by what the word and answer is grace. We see it all over this parable. It is altogether reasonable that you would expect a fig tree to produce figs. You know, I don't know anyone in our, our county that farms that has an orchard that would say, I'm going to plant some crops, and after three years of the right cultivation, it's the right amount of time, it's been plenty long enough, and they don't produce something that that, that farmer is just gonna leave those crops there. They're gonna remove them and put something else in. And, and the fig tree planted in a vineyard, it was very common at this time because vineyards had proven themselves to have fertile ground. that had all the right conditions to produce fruit and it didn't. It's very reasonable for it to be cut down and replaced. And yet, what do you see in this text? No, give it another year. Give it more time. God is patient. Not wanting any to perish. And then comes and digs around it, tries to recultivate the soil, tries to add fertilizer. This is is God. I'll I'll just connect some dots. This is God putting you here if you're not a Christian. This is the prayers given for you. This is, if you've come to faith, this is what God did for you. He somehow put you in the spot, in the right spot, created the right soil that you might be able to receive and respond. It's all grace. It's all grace. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I want to try to weave this together with this text. It says this, In you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. There's that word again. Like the rest of mankind. But God, those words don't mean anything apart from verses one through three. Now, maybe they mean something, but boy, they mean something so much better when you know what you've been brought from. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Saying it's all a work of God. See, that's the great news. When I was in high school, I loved musicals. My favorite one was Les Miserables. I'm sure I sounded super French when I said that. Um, It was written by Victor Hugo. Incredible, incredible musical. Someone asked me if I read the book in between the services. I said no, so now I need to go read the book. Um, But there's a number of characters in it and a number of scenes that are real echoes and shadows of both our need for grace and what happens when we receive it. One of those stories centers around a guy named Jean Valjean. He's one of the main characters. And he had ended up in prison because he, he was hungry. His family was hungry. They're very impoverished. And he got sentenced to five years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And while he was in prison, his sentence continued to get extended and extended. I think he was there like 19 years. So he finally gets out of prison after 19 years. You know, his life is completely crumbled. He has no prospects. He has no money. He has, he has nothing. And it's the, one of the scenes. He's in the middle of this giant storm. It's raining. It's cold. It's all these things. And he actually ends up finding shelter in a, in a pastor's house, in a, in a parsonage of a pastor named Bienvenu. And as he's with this pastor, he's kind of getting nursed back to health and form a relationship. What he realizes, Jean Valjean realizes, is he goes, I, I have nothing. I, I have no money. I have no hope. But this pastor has some silver that's really valuable. And so he he finds the silver, he steals it, so he takes the silver, he hides it, and he runs from, from from the parsonage. He runs from the house with the silver from this pastor, but he's caught. So he's already got a record, he spent 20 years in prison. And he has the only thing valuable from this house, and he has this silver, and he gets caught. And so they take Valjean, and they drag him back to the pastor's house in order to condemn him. But that's not what happens. Bienvenue actually saves him. And what he does, is he says, oh, no, 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 no. I gave, I gave Jean Valjean the silver. In fact, he forgot something and he goes into the house and he grabs the last thing of value in the entire house, which was this this silver candlestick holder, and he hands it to him. He was guilty. He committed the crime. But God. But God. Saved from, saved by, saved for. Ephesians 2 4 and following. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. See, when you know the bad news and you then hear the good news of what you receive in Christ, oh, it's beautiful. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, in light of the bad news, the terrible news, the good news is so sweet. I don't know what you feel about student debt forgiveness or not. If you have a lot of student debt, you're probably for it. If you just recently finished paying off your student debt, you're probably against it. Um, But one of the things, you know, that that I think most people can agree on is that debt can be really crushing. And really big debt can be really crushing. And the kind of debt that you can't get out of is, you know, like almost all debt. One of the things with student loan debt and why it's important to think through when you get into, if you go to school and you take out debt is you can't ever escape it. Like almost all other kinds of debt, there's actually ways to get out. Now, you might lose a lot of stuff, but you declare bankruptcy and then you can come back and go through, kind of wipe the slate clean. But this is a, this is a debt that will follow you into the grave and then from the grave, it's going to follow everyone after you because it's going to attack your estate and all sorts of things. But what if there's a debt that you can't escape and a debt that you can't pay? And then someone says, I'll pay it. And not just I'll pay it, but I'm not just gonna wipe the slate clean. I'm gonna give you riches beyond your wildest dreams. That's what this text is saying, the immeasurable riches in Christ. All the things I said that I like to talk about what we're saved for or saved towards that were justified and glorified and adopted and sealed and loved and befriended and will never be stiff-armed and will only be welcomed and will be raised with new bodies and new capacities a new creation where nothing will get broken again. Oh, it's all so true. It's all because of Christ. So how do we get it? Save from, save by, save for. There's more we could say on every single part of that. Saved how? The text gives us a one-word answer. Repent. There's not big ceremonies to go through. There's not all sorts of pledges and promises. Oh, your life will change. That's the fruit that comes from the tree as it transforms. Oh, that all happens. But that's not how we're saved. Repent. It's to turn towards. It's to, the, the, the word repentance, is, it means to turn. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. It's, it's, um, I was going in this direction, and now I'm going in this direction. I, I was believing this direction, now I'm believing this. I'm, I'm turning from running from God. I'm turning, I'm, I'm turning back and saying, oh, I, I, I know I'm a child of wrath, but God. This past August, I was hanging out with a buddy, and he, uh, he shared a story about his mom. This comes from... A couple decades ago, I think at this point, but she was going to the doctor, and uh, and it was likely cancer. She'd been through a number of tests, and so he went with her because he wanted to be with her when she got the final news. And and so he's sitting there, and he had in his pocket he had a present for her to be able to hand when the news came through. And the news came through, and it was cancer. And so out of his pocket he pulled out an envelope, and inside that envelope he hands it to his mom. And inside the envelope were two Patty Labelle tickets. Now, I guess she loved Patti LaBelle, so that, that made everything okay in that moment. And so she goes to this Patti LaBelle concert, and uh, he comes over to her house after the concert. I don't know, it's a few weeks later. comes over to her house, and he walks in the house, and he, his mom's not in the living room. She's not in the kitchen. She's not in the family room. You can kind of hear a muffled cry from the bedroom. So he goes into the bedroom, and he knocks on the door, and the door opens up, and he sees his mom. And she's kneeling by the edge of a bed. And she's just, she's weeping. And sitting on on the mattress there on top of the the comforter is what's known as a Bible tract. Someone at the concert must have at some point put this thing called a Bible tract into our hands sort of this like, the wrath of God is on you, but there's a way to, to escape. It's Jesus. Pray this prayer. And so she'd been sitting there for hours on her knees, weeping and praying. She's praying what's known as the sinner's prayer. Would you, God, would you forgive me? I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me in Christ? You know, however you've heard it phrased. And she's doing this over and over again. And and she looks up at her son, Ryan, and says, Ryan, I've been praying this prayer over and over again. How many times do I have to pray it before it works? And I love his response. Once. 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 Oh, you'll pray it over and over to remind yourself for all of life. But he says, mom, just once, because it's not about your life that saves, but Jesus' life saves. Just throw yourself on him. Just have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, do, you, do, you, do we have any, no, we don't. Do we have a glimmer of, of how bad the bad news is, and yet the way back is just this, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? Just that step, just that one step towards, just would you forgive? And he will, and he does, that we do not perish. Oh, it's the greatest urgency and the greatest salvation and the only response needed. Just turn towards him. Today and every day. Repent or perish is perhaps not what we want to hear, but perhaps the best thing we need and can hear. And if God really gives you ears to hear the very bad news, then the very good news in Christ will sound like the very best news. Let's pray. Father, I recognize we don't, in our church, and perhaps shame on me, use this sort of language that is so biblical more often. And in our culture, it feels so foreign to us. And yet it makes the songs make sense. It colors in the word of perish and what we've been saved from, and it shines a spotlight on what we've been saved for. And God, as bad as the bad news is, the good news wins. The grace of God wins. The triumph of Christ wins. And no one needs to stay far from you. Today is the day of salvation. For those that you have claimed, for those that have taken that step, God, might this erupt in a rejoicing of what they have in Christ. Made that much sweeter because of what they would have without Christ. For those that are here that do not yet know you, God, today is the day of salvation. Would they take the step to not presume upon a tomorrow? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come do the work in our hearts that we most need. think of the song, thank you for saving me. What can I say? But when we really know what we've been saved from and saved towards, nothing could be grander. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. As the band comes forward, um, take some time. I know we've had lots of extra things today. Um, but God's sovereign. Your task will wait. Your laundry will get folded or it won't at some point. You can leave it on the ground like we do. Just take some time and let the, let the Lord minister to you in the way that you most need right now. And, and as we do every week, we're going to respond by receiving communion. There's wine and bread on this side and juice and bread on this side. And each place represents the very reality of Christ body and blood given, he perished that we don't have to. That's one of the things we're retelling time and time again as we do this. And this really is an act of ongoing repentance as we turn from and we get up and we move towards, knowing that he will receive, that he will welcome, he won't push anyone away. And I love that in our church, we come to communion with completely empty hands. The only thing you need is need. The only thing you need is need. Go to this table and worship your king who has saved you.